0: Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Simon Anholt. Simon is the author of a new book, The Good Country Equation, and he's also an independent policy advisor and researcher who has worked with the leaders and governments of more than 50 nations to help them improve their economic, political, and cultural engagement with the international community. Uh, I know, Simon, you've been advising Governments and other kinds of organizations for many years in this area about global reputation uh, mm. and also given many talks, especially TED Talks, which are all available on YouTube and written many books on that and it's I was difficult to try to work out where your new book the Good Country Equation, is coming from it 's almost like you want to kind of press reset on your own thinking never mind the thinking of, of globalization and we 'll start from Maybe one of many quotes I'll throw at you of your own words. You say at the beginning of the book, we've allowed many parts of globalization to spiral out of control and there are failures and responsibilities that need to be acknowledged before we can press reset. Mm. What do you mean by that? Give me some, at least some examples of these uh, examples of globalization spiraling out of control.
1: Gosh, you started with the hard one, didn't you? Um, <laughs> Throughout my career, I've met people and had conversations with them about globalization because that's the sort of background topic um, to everything I've ever done. And I find that you're expected to either be a pro-globalist or an anti-globalist. And I suppose I've come to the conclusion that neither position is tenable. Mm. Globalization is just a thing. It's not an idea that somebody invented one day and thought, this is a good plan, let's follow it and it went wrong. Globalization, I often think, and I said, I said this in the book, is more an instinct of human nature. Um, in one of the more flowery passages, I say, ever since we walked out of Africa tens of thousands of years ago and stopped being a single tribe, inhabiting a single location and facing a single set of problems, the story of human invention since that day has been the story of us trying to get back together again. Mm-hmm. Um, and And we've sort of succeeded now. We're within a hair's breadth of really being a single tribe facing a single set of problems. It's a single set of problems, by the way, this time because we caused them all ourselves. Um, and, And so I think that any sensible discussion about the future of globalization has got to acknowledge that there are some really good things, some extraordinary things about how that journey has gone and what we've achieved along the way. But we, and that includes corporations and governments and many other we's, have been shockingly remiss about failing to control the quite predictable negative consequences of certain types of globalization. And so I guess what I'm saying is it really does need a bit of a rethink.
0: Right. Okay. Many of your books and many of your talks in the past have been about this issue of a uh, country's reputation, its image. Mm-hmm. And I think in this book, you're trying to say, let's let's make this discussion a bit more sophisticated, at the risk of offending you using that word. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say that although obviously some countries have positive images, some have negative images, uh, and these have real impacts on a, a country's uh, attractiveness for investment and so on and so on, mm-hmm. uh, you do also say that it's maybe this issue of Im- a country image is a bit of a distraction from the serious business of, of good governance in a globalized world. Would you mind mm-hmm. kind of developing that theory a bit more for me?
1: Sure. Well, <laughs> the, the, the the image of countries is, is, is a, a lame dog that's been limping after me for the last 20 years. <laughs> and, and, and every now and again, I turn around and give it a kick um, and try and get it to stop following me. And I can't. And, rather than this book being the moment where I decided to turn around and shoot it, it is actually the moment where I decided to turn around and give it a, give it a pat. Um, because I finally understood that actually there is a connection between the images of countries and the state that we're in today and the state that we need to be in tomorrow. These things are quite closely connected. And I, by the time I'd reached the end of the book, I'd made peace with, with nation branding. Because I finally understood that actually, despite everything i had been saying about, about it all these years, actually, it may well be the clue for how we can change. And that's what, the, that's what I mean by the good country equation. The good country equation basically says that um, image is important to countries, undoubtedly. Countries with powerful and positive images trade at a premium. Everything is easy and everything is cheap countries that have got weak or negative images everything is difficult and everything is expensive and this of course increases the global wealth gap it increases global inequality because poor countries not only have to hope to cope with weak institutions and weak infrastructure and weak economies they also have to battle constantly against the headwind of a weak or negative reputation and so the the way that the world sees countries in a globalized world is absolutely central To their progress and prosperity and to the to 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 global inequalities and the the good country equation says because those images are so important all countries need to try to do whatever they can to make sure their image is as fair and as true and as up-to-date and as useful to their aspirations as it can possibly be but You can't fix that image by bragging about yourself. You can't fix it by propaganda. That's why branding was such a bad word to use, because it implies that it's a marketing and communications exercise. You tell everybody how wonderful you are, and suddenly they change their minds. That's not how how these things work. What does change the image of a country, according to my research, is how well it behaves as a principled and responsible member of the international community. People most admire the countries that do most to tackle the global challenges. Everybody loves Norway because Norway works for peace and and against climate change. Lots of people mistrust Russia because they think that Russia isn't working for global peace and global security. So that's what it comes down to. And the, and the, the basic discovery is I don't any longer, and nobody else has to go to governments or nations and ask them to be moral. Because that never works. Countries are not moral and neither are most leaders come to that. So you don't have to go to them and say, look, do something about your emissions or do something about your conflict because it's the right thing to do. You can go to them and say, do this because it will improve your image. In fact, it's the only thing that will improve your image. And if your image improves, you'll make more money. It's self-interest.
0: Well, you do say in the book that it's a question of enlightened self-interest, don't you? Mm -hmm. Uh, I just wonder, well, the question of image also, as you say, is is not so much at hiding to, to, to nothing but also difficult to control from a government perspective because if on the international stage they have no control over what you call in effect international propaganda because mm-hmm. uh, countries cannot control that external okay. image right okay. okay. what well, i was trying to to understand when you your booked what extent you were making a kind of a kind of plaintive plea for countries to be more outward looking and outward facing or whether you were simply kind of just pushing them on a path that they're already well well on. Do you see what I mean? That the, mm. You say countries should not just, obviously, you have sympathy for, obviously, that a priority of any government should be looking after its own citizens. But having said that, you want countries, all countries, all 200-odd in the world, to be more outward-facing, outward have this vocation. Do you think that is something which is now starting to happen more more significantly compared to the past?
1: like 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 almost everything on this funny old planet anything you can say the opposite is equally true um and as usual humanity is setting off in two opposite directions simultaneously we've got uh, a bunch of countries which are ever more convinced that multilateralism and peaceful collaboration and cooperation is the way to go and actually if we want to progress and prosper. We need to dial down a tiny bit on competition and dial up a lot on collaboration and cooperation, which is my view. But at the same time, you have a bunch of other countries who are herring off in the opposite direction, um, looking inwards and basically pursuing a dream of uh, independence um, and uh, very often isolationism with it. I think there are arguments for both sides. The one thing I really didn't want to do with this book or with anything I do is to help that division get worse. One of the things I often say to people is, being a so-called globalist or being a so-called localist, just like being a so-called liberal or a so-called conservative, those are not different tribes that should be fighting each other. It's just you on a different day. Think about it. We're all of us capable of understanding the appeal of both sides of all of those spectrums, and we have to acknowledge that before we can even begin to, to start working together. But, but, but to try and answer your, your, your fir- the first part of your question there, it's, it's a bit plaintive, um, but I think it is also um, an attempt to try and awaken governments to the reality that this is not... That the collaborating, cooperating, and doing the right thing for the international community is not going to lose you competitive advantage. Um, it's not going to lose your seat at the next election. Actually, quite the contrary. The problem is that most governments, in my experience, certainly the 57 or 58 of them that I've advised, they've never even troubled to find out what would happen if they became more internationally minded, more outward looking, if they tried to harmonise their domestic and their international responsibilities because they're so absolutely convinced that those two things are antithetical. Whoever ends up being a leader has gone to some school somewhere that's taught them lesson one, anything you do that's good for your own people is bad for everybody else. Anything you do that's good for the planet is bad for your own economy. And actually, once you start picking that apart and saying, well, which policies actually? You begin to realize that there's a whole spectrum of potential for good governance of the sort that's never even been examined before.
0: There are a couple of things also which seem to me at first sight like a contradiction, but I'm sure you'll put me straight. You say that people like it when countries are kind to each other, which suggests that we should all get on and be and be kind to each other, <laughs> as a self-evident truth. Uh, at the same time, you talk about the, it, it, how it's crazy for countries to see themselves as being in competition with each other, and yet you do talk about countries having a competitive advantage, so I'm not quite clear where you're coming from on that. Um,
1: first of all, it, it's i i'd like to make it clear that i've got i haven't got a problem with competition um people sometimes assume that what i'm saying is competition is bad collaboration is good let's ban competition and just collaborate (laughs) obviously that's not going to (laughs) work and obviously it will feel very wrong because we're competitive creatures Mm. um competition is a is a is a wonderful thing it's a wonderful driving force for progress of all sorts um competition has lifted billions of people out of poverty as we all know Competition only is only a problem when it becomes the only altar at which we worship. And that's been the issue for the, for the last 80 years or more. So what I'm appealing for here um, is a, a, a wiser admixture of competition, collaboration and cooperation of the sort that industry began to experiment with back in the 1970s. The Japanese automakers started uh, promoting this idea of co-opetition which has proved to be remarkably effective and still goes on today. We don't talk about it much. But coopetition, um, as long as it doesn't become uh, uncompetitive cartel, uh, is actually a really good way of raising all the ships on the ocean um, at the same time and still allowing competition. And I think that coopetition is an experiment that's 50 years overdue in the public sector.
0: Okay. You I I was curious and I saw toward the end of the book references to see whether you've written this book before or during or after the pandemic. Um but obviously you may maybe writing it during the pandemic. And and an obvious question to ask you is in very broad terms, and maybe there's no obviously clear answer at this stage, you know, black and white answer at least. What the, the effect of the pandemic on this idea of cooperating, or and also competi- competing with each other? Well, one thing, is of course, of you know, competition for the medical equipment and the vaccine mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, those vaccines are based on transfrontier cooperation. So there's a kind mm-hmm. of tension there, isn't there, or a contradiction? Absolutely, there is one of the one of the dep-
1: on, on bad days. I, I think to myself, there's no hope for any of us actually, because all the we've all lost the ability to change our minds about anything anymore. And if we can't change our minds, we're screwed. Um, you know, all the people who were convinced multilateralists and globalists before the pandemic now see nothing but further arguments for why we need more of it. Um, and all the people who are against globalization before the pandemic have. Found the perfect reason to argue against more globalization because without globalization, there'd be no pandemic. And they're both right. (laughs) Of course, they are. (laughs) Um, And and that's a little bit depressing. But um, there are several reasons why I think the pandemic may end up having, may end up proving to be a blessing in disguise. Um, The first thing I think, and I'm beginning to see this uh, in my research, um, is that it's been very helpful to climate change the one thing that climate change never somehow yet succeeded in doing was making itself recognized as a common enemy of humanity when humanity recognizes it has a common enemy then it will mobilize against that enemy somehow we've never recognized as a whole species that we have a common enemy that's climate change because it doesn't look like an enemy it looks like a vague distant prospect the pandemic has shown us very brutally that there is such a thing as enemy of humanity Trump's uh, framing of it is actually quite interesting from that point of view. And it has made us realize that we have no special dispensation to survive, that actually this solid society that we certainly in the rich world felt we were living with up until, living in up until the pandemic, was se- we were separated from chaos by the thickness of a cigarette paper. Mm-hmm. It's taken no- almost nothing to throw society into something approaching true chaos disarray and i think a lot of people have seen this and they've said my god maybe they were right about climate change maybe we really really could be thrown into absolute maybe we could be ended by this thing and that was the leap of imagination we hadn't succeeded in making and now we must and the other good thing about the pandemic is that it's made everybody in the world realize that we are actually one group of people you turn on the tv you look at the internet any any moment of any day and you see people all over the world suffering and hoping just exactly as you are And for a sense of global unity and belonging, that's been absolutely precious. It's as good as the the pale blue dot in the NASA photo.
0: Well, let's try and maybe uh, combine it, with, if it's not too too artificial, the, the response to the pandemic and and the European Union. You say in the book, and I say I endorse it, that for you, the European Union is the most noble experiment in human history, or words that effect. I haven't got the quote in front of me. But you also go on to say that the EU has a, a distinctly 21st problem, one of identity. The EU's problem is not that it doesn't brag enough about its successes. It is, it is no longer quite sure what it is for. And that uncertainty is contagious Do you think there are are grounds for hope maybe that this this new purpose might come in a very perverse way on the back of the pandemic? It's possible. I
1: certainly think the pandemic has been useful to show the European European Union um, that if it's not the world's paragon of international cooperation and collaboration, it doesn't deserve to exist. And certainly in the early stages of the pandemic, it was um, showing itself to be a laggard, actually panicking. Um, and it seems to have got a grip, which is very good news. Yes, I did and have often described the European Union as the noblest experiment in the history of humanity, but every day that dawns for the European Union is another test Mm. of whether it deserves that accolade or not. Um, And I think um, this has been useful in reminding it that it needs to have a fundamental purpose and it needs to
0: meet that purpose. And do you think, without pressing the point, do you think that it, it's now learnt, quote-unquote, the area of its ways, and it is now realising how it has to do a better job and is doing a better job including this new recovery fund to help it? Well,
1: um, <laughs> if only doing a better job were simply a, a matter of realising the problem. <laughs> um, doing a better job is enormously complex, but I think it has realised the problem and will now be working perhaps in a slightly straighter line towards uh, t- towards making things work better. But I do still maintain that this sense of a core underlying purpose to replace its original raison d'etre is missing. I still do think that most people don't really know quite what it's for. It doesn't mean they don't love or appreciate it, Mm. but they still couldn't say in a single sentence the European European Union exists because. Um, And that's so important because it's so important that other groups of countries can have the wit and the wisdom to follow its example.
0: Right. I should point out this at this point in the podcast to the listeners that your book, if they haven't read it yet, is it talks about many of the the countries you visited and advised over the years, a a large number of countries. It's a great geography lesson for people like me. Uh, But I'm going in a slightly counterintuitive way, and I can't resist uh, the temptation Simon, to, to finish off this conversation by talking about Brexit, mm. a very parochial issue for two Brits, maybe. But nonetheless, I because you have certain views about obviously, which are very clear in the book, and although we're, we've tried, we've forced each other to move on from this idea of image, but of clearly a lot of the, the post-Brexit world for the UK is predicated on this idea of a sort of global Britain, which you seem to give relatively short shrift to (laughs) in the book. I mean, if you were advising the government, maybe you are for all I know, of my business on how to project itself in this this unknown uh, post-Brexit world, what kind of advice would you be giving it?
1: Uh, I'm not advising them for for the record. (laughs) Um... Memo in patria. Uh, I don't think the British government know who the hell I am, even though I live here. Um, and It's probably just as well. Um, Well, first of all, on the image question, Brexit really hasn't done very much to damage Britain's image. Um, There was a bit of a dip in in my survey. I run this international poll measuring the images of countries after the referendum was announced, but it was mostly from European neighbours and colleagues. The rest of the world clearly has no idea what the European Union is. Um, And clearly doesn't think that Britain leaving whatever this boring sounding organisation is, has any uh, significance. Um, So, so from the point of view of it damaging Britain's image, I don't think we need to worry. All that's really happened is that the image of Britain has shifted from the uh, sort of um, Cool Britannia version, that it's modern and funky and cosmopolitan um, and rather creative, to the Downton Abbey version, that it's old and posh and boring and has phantom empire syndrome, you know where your empire has been amputated and you keep trying to scratch it. Mm -hmm. Um, So Britain is lucky enough to have two alternative images and all this has done is shifted the points on it. So now we're Downton Abbey again for the time being because we're being colonial. Um, I don't want to make light of it, but that is basically what's happened. What's far more important, I think, is what what we do with this situation that, that is now a reality. And I maintain, and I continue to maintain it in the book, that there is a version of global Britain that's actually really useful, not just for Britain, but for the whole world. It's a story that says we want to go beyond the European Union and start forging international alliances of cooperation and collaboration to tackle the global challenges of humanity in an even braver and bolder and more original and imaginative way than we ever could as a member of the EU. And we're not leaving the EU because we we don't like the EU. We're leaving the EU because we can help it and everybody else from a position of complete independence. It's a bit of a stretch, but I think it would work um, if only that was what the British government and the British population firmly believe, but I'm afraid neither of them do in any significant numbers. So it's just a fantasy.
0: Well, you touch on in the book, uh, and again, give it, a, I think if I'm right in saying it, but short shrift it's this whole notion of, of, of soft power and stroke public diplomacy. And you were involved in that in the Foreign Office a few years ago uh, mm. on a public diplomacy advisory board. But I mean, I'm sure if the, if the civil servants in Whitehall and diplomats are putting together some kind of public diplomacy strategy, they would be saying those kind of things and pointing to relatively objectively things coming up like their, their co chairmanship of COP26 next year on climate change, their ongoing, obviously, membership of the UN, Security Council, Covenant Member, NATO, and all the, and all the rest of it. So there are things there that the, the government could relatively authentically and honestly uh, subscribe to by saying this is what we're going to do, be doing in the future.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm less interested in those as proof points in some sort of imaginary conversation with the court of international public opinion, where we say, look at this, look at this, we can prove that we mean this, because that's, of course, as we all know, not the way it works. Public opinion isn't a court in any sense at all. It's just a bunch of people who think what they think and don't listen to anything else. Um, I'm more interested in those actions as evidence that there really is a strategy going on here. And because I don't work with the British government, I don't know what their underlying strategy is, and I don't know what's in Boris Johnson's mind. Perhaps you're right, and perhaps you know when you list all of those actions, for a moment one could believe that actually Boris Johnson had been rather clever about this, and he'd played back the populist card, the the unilateralist nationalist card, in order to get elected and to get to the position where he could produce Brexit. But all along inside. It was actually a grand scheme to slip in by stealth this much more noble vision of trying to make the world a better place. God, I'd be so happy if I believed that. Who knows? Maybe it's true. And maybe, I'll be, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll see that that was the case.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, a, a final question. Uh, and it sounds a bit like a leading question, but you'll be able to handle it, I'm sure. You do say in the book, throughout the book, that uh, in, in different in context of different countries, for example, that the issue of trust is, is, is paramount in terms of, again, going back to this issue of image and reputation. And to push back a bit on your first answer on the Brexit side, you know, you, you say that according to your survey of course, the image of the UK hasn't been too particularly badly uh, impacted. But nonetheless, there is this issue of trust now. It is mm-hmm. to be very pedantic and arcane. The, the internal market bill in the House is the moment, at the moment. Uh, the moment. Uh, and this issue that the UK it cannot be trusted. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that an issue for you or not?
1: God, yes, it's an issue for me, but it's not an issue paper.
0: in terms of you think that the government understands that its, it's trustworthiness is, is under the spotlight.
1: Um, well, everybody's saying it, so they must have heard it. And it's not difficult to understand. So I would suppose they do understand that. But I think here one always has to distinguish very carefully between elite and mass opinion, as the right. social scientists call it. Um, elites observe things like this. They, you know, diplomats and investors and so forth other governments. They know what's going on in the British House of Parliament, just as they know what's going on in the German Chancellery. And uh, they ask themselves now, can Britain be trusted in exactly the same way as they're asking, can America be trusted? And that's enormously damaging because those people are enormously influential. It's catastrophic. However, um, those kinds of elite perceptions, based on fairly recondite goings-on, don't tend to leach out into broad public opinion. And broad public opinion is just as important but in different ways because those are tourists, those are consumers, those are investors. They are uh, what I've often called the last remaining superpower. Um, And the last remaining superpower, international public opinion, tends not to bother with uh, fine issues like you know, is, is Britain breaking international law and therefore can it be trusted? They don't make their decisions on the trustworthiness of other nations on the basis of technicalities.
0: Right. OK, well, well we have to leave it there. Um, Simon Anhold, author of The Good Country Equation. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you,
1: Paul.